But uh, the text that we have this evening I just thought was really an, an excellent timing of a text for us to, to conclude the service with the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> and so we'll read then 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 31, and that will be our portion <clears throat> this evening. For ye see your calling, brethren, <clears throat> how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. <clears throat> Excuse me. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, <clears throat> that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And let's pray then this evening. <clears throat> Father, this may, may this be true of all of us, always and at all times, that our boast is never in ourselves, but that our boast is always in you. And Father, for this to be possible, we must be genuinely persuaded of what you teach us about yourself and about ourselves. And so I pray for the grace to speak plainly and the grace to receive your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul has explained in 1 Corinthians 1-2, which I really think gives to you or to us the substance and the intent of the letter. We are called to be saints. We are called to be God's saints in a world that is very sinful. <clears throat> and in some way, a ways that on the one hand are very clear to us, but on the other hand are perhaps not as clear, uh, the Corinthians have, over the course of their Christian lives, become very enamored of the world. And they have decided that worldly wisdom, and again, we know that <clears throat> exactly how it plays out um, is a little less clear in the text. But they have decided that the, the pathway to successful Christian ministry is through the employment of what Paul keeps referring to as wor the world's wisdom or the wisdom of the world or man's wisdom. And so very early in the book, right out of the gate, Paul begins to attack that. Much of this worldly wisdom, or at least some of it, is contained in the idea that individual men are somehow differently able to minister to you spiritually. And Paul will tackle that head on in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That seems to be what's going on in his critique of them. Some of you say, I am of Paul. And some say, I am of Apollos. And some say, I am of Cephas. As if as if God's ministers were truly any substantive, substantive method of 
blessing. And so Paul is explaining to the church that God used the cross of Christ, which we will come back to again and again in this early passage, in particularly in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, <clears throat> that, that God used the cross, this symbolic, not a symbolic death, but a death symbolizing the utter and complete rejection of society and all that is good and right, dying as a criminal, that God has employed the cross as the means of saving mankind, and that God has employed the proclamation of the cross. And we know from Paul's ministry that this involved the entire use of the Bible, but it didn't involve anything else. Paul did not try to employ any of the worldly techniques or methodologies. He preached the Bible. And this is God's plan. Um, A very lowly methodology, killing our Savior as a criminal, and a very unsophisticated methodology of having it proclaimed by sinful men. And yet, that is the power of transformation, of moving people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That is the difference between them having a Bible in their hand and understanding what the Bible is talking about, is the work of God. And again, Paul will turn to that at the end of chapter number 2, after talking to them about his ministerial method in verses 1 through 5. He will talk to them about God's ministerial method in verses 6 through 16. And then in this passage this evening, in verses 26 through 31, Paul continuing on with with his trajectory that it is Christ on the cross and the message of the Christ of Christ on the cross that is how salvation is made possible and communicated to men that Paul turns his attention to the Corinthians themselves. These people who, for whatever reason, under the influence of errant teaching, had begun to sway the church into a methodology that favored worldly wisdom. And so in verse number 26, Paul begins now, right? Verse number 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men, The weakness of God is stronger than men. He will turn to that in chapter 2. For ye see your calling, brethren. For ye see your calling. You are the proof. You are the evidence of what I have just been claiming. You see your calling. I just want to take a minute and talk about that word, folks, because... There, there are a couple of things that we really do need to understand about it. Uh, the, the Bible uses that word call. Well, it uses it in a variety of ways. I can, right, I can, I can call you to come to dinner. But in, in kind of theological terms, the, the New Testament uses that word. The Bible uses that word two ways. The Bible uses that word to describe the way God calls everybody. And theologians refer to that as God's general call. Everybody gets called. 
Everybody is to hear the gospel. Everybody is to be invited to believe. Everybody is to be treated as if salvation really is for them. Everybody is expected to believe, and additionally, everybody is judged for their rejection of that message. If you'd like to see the legs to that, if you'd like to see it in action, I would just refer you to Matthew chapter 22, to the invitation to the wedding. Everybody's called. Many are called. There's a general call. But then there is the same word used to describe the way people who respond to the gospel are identified. And theologians tend to call this God's effective call. Everybody gets called. But the call is effective in those who believe. And this is the way that the word is used in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 30. Foreknowledge, predestination, glorification, called and justified. That that there is a call, there are those that respond to the call, and for them the call is effective. And rather than just hear the gospel message, they believe the gospel message. And they are then referred to as the called. So there's a sense, biblically, in which everybody is called, And then the Bible takes that same word and uses it to describe out of everybody that is called, specifically those who respond to the call as those who are called. And I'm going through all of that, folks, because that's the way the word is being used in 1 Corinthians 1.26. Not in the general sense in which Paul went into Corinth and preached the gospel to everybody that he could get to listen to him. In the sense of those who responded to the gospel message to those who, for whom the call was effective. And when you look around upon those whom, for whom the call is effective, this is what you note. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, and then... Our Bible, our King James Bible, supplies for us the verb again, our call. Not many. Not many wise, not many powerful, not many noble. You don't find a lot of believers in those categories. Every once in a while, God will save a celebrity, but he doesn't save a lot. Every once in a while, God will save a politician, but he doesn't save a lot. Every once in a while, God will save a monarch, but not a lot. Every once in a while, God will save a powerful inventor, a world changer, but not many. Not many respond to that call. And the reason for that is, those tend to be categories in which one of the ways that you succeed in that category is by being very skilled in the use of worldly wisdom. So there are not many. For whatever reasons, the Corinthians were very much enamored of those categories of people, and that seems to be the mindset that they had embraced was that they could somehow, whatever they needed to do in Corinth, they could make their ministry effective 
and win those kind of people. And I think that we need to recognize folks, right? It's easy to look at the pages of, you know, an eternal book that is very old in its perspective. You know, Corinth was 2,000 years ago and think it has nothing to do with us. But, but I would just point out to you that modern Christianity, even very conservative Christianity, tends to be very much impressed with celebrity. And right, if, if there was, we, we laugh about it now. We, those of us who went to the same college, laugh about it now because in the early 1980s or the mid-1980s, a young man from our college went out to start a church and he came up with the idea on the inaugural Sunday of starting this church of getting Anita Bryant. And Anita Bryant was a celebrity who professed to be a believer and that seemed to be credible. If you go back, you probably find her on YouTube saying she, she did some orange juice commercials. And so he got Anita Bryant to come to his inaugural church service. He had, I don't know, 1,500 people came to hear Anita Bryant. Next Sunday, nobody came to hear him. We're just impressed with celebrity. <clears throat> I mean, it's just... <clears throat> It's just a reality. And I was just scrolling through my Facebook page a while back and saw a church that I had some familiarity with and the people that were there and they were promoting, right? Come here, the award-winning singing group. Come here, the award-winning singing group. Because we just tend to think, right? If we are personally not attracted, we tend to think that perhaps other people will come to Christ because they hear the message through a celebrity or a politician or some kind of influencer. And Paul just points to the Corinthians, says, you, you see your calling. Look around the auditorium at the First Baptist Church of Corinth and you'll notice a conspicuous minority. Not many, not many, not many. <clears throat> and Paul goes on to point out to them that this is a reality because this is God's choice for the reality. In other words, folks, there's nothing wrong with us that we cannot attract a better demographic. And I realize that I'm saying this to a group of people for whom really you are kind of an unusual demographic, I think, in and of yourself in conservative Christianity. But there's nothing wrong with us, folks, because we can't win all the politicians. And because we can't win the celebrities. And because we can't win the musicians. And because we can't win. There's nothing wrong with us because we can't persuade the scientists to believe the gospel. And we will get to this. But God really doesn't give us any latitude to sit around and have conferences and committees and meetings where we devise strategies to how to remedy that. What do we need to do to get the scientists to hear our message? 
And so in verses 27 through 30, Paul goes on to explain that the reason that there is this conspicuous absence of power brokers in Corinth is because God has arranged it to work out that way. Verse 26, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called, but, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring up to naught things that are. I want to pass over verse 29 for a moment, verse number 30. But of him, of him, and the text there that is, is God, of him, God the Father, are ye in Christ Jesus. This is God the Father's will that in Christ Jesus we are. Or God of God is made unto us wisdom. Jesus is our wisdom. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our sanctification. Jesus is our redemption. This is what God has chosen. And, and we're, we're, we're back to this, to a, to, a, to a theme that we've introduced and talked a little bit about in Sunday School with Providence, this idea of concurrence, that God is at work and men is at, are at work. And men are making their own choices freely. And in every imaginable way, they are making the decision that they desire to make. And God, at the same time, is working to accomplish his own purposes and what God has chosen to do, folks, is not simply to save men, but to save men in such a way that it strips them of their human pride in so doing. So not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise men after the flesh, because there are lots of wise men after the Lord, but not many wise men after the flesh. Because God has chosen the foolish things. And the Greek word there is literally the word that gives us our English word moron. God has chosen moronic things. Things that just defy the logic and the capacity of the human mind. He has chosen that. He didn't stumble upon it. He chose it. It is part of his deliberate plan. And he has done that to confound, to confound, verse number 27, to confound the wise. And I want to talk about that word for a minute because to us the word confound, or at least to me the word confound, oftentimes refers to confusion. But that is not what the word means. What the word actually refers to is humiliation. In Luke 13, 17, the word is translated ashamed. His adversaries were ashamed. And in Romans 5, 5, <clears throat> our hope does not make us ashamed. We will not be humiliated because we have placed our hope in something that will not happen. 
And in Romans 9.33, whoever believes on Jesus will not be ashamed. And again, the idea there is not that we will not be embarrassed. The idea is that having put our hope in him, we will not come to a point of shame because we have done that. Jesus is not a bad investment. It's not like you put all of your money into one stock and then you discovered that it was a gigantic Ponzi scheme and not only have you lost everything, you're humiliated to explain how it happened. Jesus is not like that. And in 1 Corinthians 11.4, if a man prays with his head covered, it dishonors in our King James Bible. It brings humiliation and shame to his head. So this is what God has chosen to do. This is, this is a deliberate strategy that the salvation of men is for them in some way a humiliating event. It kicks them, it kicks us right in the teeth of our pride. How lofty we think we are how mighty we think we are, how wise we think we are. And God has deliberately chosen a humiliating strategy for saving sinners. And Paul just hammers this to us repeatedly in verses 27 and 28. So that we are under no false impression about what he is saying. God has chosen the moronic things of this world to humiliate the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things, things that have no power in this world. Things that are without a voice, the disenfranchised. God hath chosen those things, the weak things, to humiliate the things which are mighty. And God has chosen, verse 28, the base things of the world. The, the, the actual word refers to the lowborn, which is a little bit lost on us because we have such a democratic, egalitarian outlook that we don't really recognize the concept of nobility and lowborn. But most of the world did, and much of the world still does. With the king, with the Queen of England's death, of course, King Charles is in the news. and Charles made news a few years back because he married a commoner. That was, that was no small deal to it, British royalty that the great love of Charles's life was not royalty in any way. God hath chosen the low-born of this world to humiliate the noble of this world. And I really don't know anything about her. When, when my wife and I were in the UK a few years ago, you can, you can take a tour of the Royal Yacht, which is pretty impressive. And, but one of the things that they pointed out to us was that the people who worked on the yacht are not allowed to look at the Queen. You're not supposed to try and make eye contact or even look at her when she's on board. And God is going to humiliate the noble through the lowborn. This is the idea. 
And the things that are despised, verse number 28, the things that are held in low regard and of no account. One of the Greek statesmen said, the rich do what they will and the poor suffer what they must. And then he is going to use the things which are not, which doesn't refer to things that don't exist, but things that don't count. Things that don't count. That as the world looks, just as it looked at Jesus Christ as an object of ridicule, as having no standing, as having no voice, as having no merit, as having no value, just like that, God is going to bring to humiliation the mighty, powerful, noble of this world. And so this is why verse number 30 is there. He, God has chosen to place those things in opposition to the things that He values. Christ and His wisdom and Christ and His might. He is going to bring to shame. He is going to bring down in humiliation All of those things. And the Corinthians are on that side. They are on the low born. You don't really count. You'd never be thought of as a mover or a shaker. Your sphere of influence is non-existent. And that would include then the vast majority. Not all. Paul, Paul never says none. He just says not a lot. Christianity, folks, has never been carried on the backs of people of wealth and celebrity. Never has. Never will be. Christianity will never really be the end thing. Never will be. By design, cannot be that way. And so verse 30 again, but of him, which means out of him, Are you the Corinthians and therefore us all in Christ? And for us, it's not worldly wisdom, it's Christ's wisdom. And for us, it's not the world's righteousness, it's His. And for us, it's not committed to the world, it's set apart for Him. And for us, it's not a salvation that we invent, it is a redemption that He has purchased. Jesus Christ is the complete and total opposite of this world's wisdom Power, nobility, and ability. We know this, folks. We, we know that Zechariah 9 predicted a lowly Savior, and we know that on that Sunday that he, entered, that, that he entered Jerusalem, that he came riding on a donkey, a symbol of his humility. Because God had chosen the moronic things of this world to humiliate the powerful. And that brings me to the last two verses, verses 29 and 31. Why did God choose this methodology? In other words, folks, right? Here's, here are the Corinthians having meetings of leadership. 
How are we going to reach those people? What can we do to influence those people? What can we, what can we do to place the First Baptist Church at Corinth as a force to be reckoned with? I mean, I don't know what they're thinking. We just, we just know what Paul is talking to them about. I don't know exactly how it played out in their assembly. I'm not suggesting that. But as they are contemplating the best use of worldly wisdom, God is contemplating something completely different. Why would God choose this this method? Not because he hates the rich. Not because he hates the intelligent. Not because he hates politicians. But because God has a concern that transcends the wisdom and the glory and the splendor of men. That is his own glory. I mean, if you just think about it, folks, right? The logic of this seems to be impeccable. Why not save a prominent athlete so that he can, like the world's greatest ad campaign, use his celebrity to influence other athletes and those who follow athletics. And then why not save a movie star? And then have that movie star be able to influence other movie stars and all of those people who go, they wouldn't believe on any other Jesus Jesus for any other reason but that their celebrity endorses him. Why not do that? And the answer is twofold, and it's stated in verse number 29 negatively and verse number 31 positively. Here's the reality, folks. As unpalatable as this might be to us, it is just simply not God's goal to save as many as he can at whatever cost it is. Although he paid a tremendous price to save mankind, didn't he? He is willing to sacrifice his son but he is not willing to sacrifice his glory. And so, all of this so that verse number 29, and the word that, the word that means so that. This is the purpose. Why is verse 27 and 28 true? So that this is the end result. Why this humiliating message? that is completely and totally impervious to your status? Why not save you just because you're royalty? Why not save you just because you have contributed something that has made everybody's life better? Because this is the goal, that no flesh would glory in His presence. And as I said last week, folks, I think that what Paul is getting at there based on the context of the way he talks in chapter 3, that Paul does not want those who are evangelized to glory, and Paul does not want those who are doing the evangelizing to glory. You know, I came out of a background where every week, every week, we celebrated the top soul winners. Every week we recognized who had the most people saved, who had the most people baptized, 
who had the most people down the aisle. Every week for four years, we did that. Here's what Paul said. No glory, no flesh glories. Nobody brags in his presence. There's no place for that. Not the one who is saved and not the one who is talking about how to be saved. No, No flesh glories. So there it is stated, verse number 21, negatively. Why a message that is crafted to humiliate men so that we have all gratitude and no boasting? And then it is stated positively in verse number 31. He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And that is written, by the way, I'll read it to you, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. Kind of get the idea? But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgments, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So, as we come, and I'm going to ask now our deacons, if they would please, to come and help us to serve the Lord's Supper. I just thought what an appropriate time this is for, for us. Right? As we, as, we, as we observe the Lord's table to glory in the Lord. Yes, Paul, you too. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. <clears throat> yes, Paul, you too. Um, <clears throat> to glory in the Lord. Right? To recognize this is a time when God has, I mean, it's, it's, it's not God's, right? It's not God's stated purpose, I don't think, Right to just embarrass us as much as he can embarrass us, but to strip us of our pride and arrogance and thought of self-righteousness or great worth because of our status or position. We're actually going to talk about this in a few weeks when Paul talks to those who are rich in 1 Timothy 6.17 that the great peril of being even minutely affluent is to think pretty highly of ourselves, to be, to be pretty elevated about our place in the world. And God just will not tolerate that. So as we observe the Lord's table this evening, and what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to pray, and then the gentlemen are going to distribute to you the bread, and then we'll all take of the bread together, and then they will distribute to you the juice, and we'll take of the juice together. And then, as I said, we're doing this in lieu of our prayer request this evening. At the end, we have one more song that we'll sing, and we'll be dismissed. Let's go together to the Lord. This evening, Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ and we thank you that you were willing to be completely and utterly humiliated for the sake of our salvation. And I pray for myself and us that we would never be haughty or arrogant about anything that we contribute or do or think or say about our own salvation, but that all of our boasting would be in the Lord Jesus Christ and in you for sending him as our Savior. And so we pray, Lord, your blessing upon our time, our observation of the Lord's table this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.